Oh, Overlake, I love worshiping with you. Go ahead and grab a seat. It is an honor to be with you today. My name is Mike, one of the pastors on the team. As we get started, I do want to draw your attention to the connection card that was in your handout. Uh, we ask that everybody fill out as much as you feel comfortable with. On the back, you'll notice some action items, and that's a place also for, for you if you have prayer requests or, or questions, or it's just kind of a way that we make a big, a big place feel a little bit smaller and more intimate. So fill this out. If you're a regular, you can drop it in the offering bucket when it comes by a little bit later. But if you're a first-time guest with us today, we ask that you hold on to this card on the way out. Out, you'll see an info desk. You can turn in that card for a gift. It's just our way of saying thank you for joining us this morning. And I do want to just take a moment and say that we want to welcome uh, many dear friends from the Aegis uh, the, uh, Living Home today. Um, can you just honor these folks right over here sitting with us on the side? We love you. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you guys. All right. Well, um, I, I want to invite you to grab your notes out of your handout. You'll see that we are continuing a series through the book of Acts, talking about the first church. We began this conversation a couple of weeks ago when we talked about how on the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit came and invaded the lives of believers. On that day, Peter spoke the first, he preached the first message, and in that day, there were 3,000 added to the number of believers. They were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit in their lives, and that cycle, that's the first church, but that cycle has continued through the, the centuries, and we are a part of that same movement of God today. Now, Today, I want to talk about, and then sort of last week we talked about how the first disciples, the first communities looked, and, and very exciting about that as well. Today, I want to talk about the concept of evil, because whenever you have a movement of God, there will be opposition to that movement of God. And so we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit. For some of you today, I just want to call this out, this is going to be the weirdest message you ever heard. Right? Because maybe for some of you, this the idea of a supernatural evil, some like an embo a tangible embodiment of you know bad guyness, just it just kind of weirds you out. You've never even thought about that. So what I want to do is just on the front end, by way of introduction, talk about three mistakes that we mortals make when it comes to the idea of evil, of supernatural evil. Okay. And the first mistake that we make is the mistake of unbelief. We mistake that, that there actually is, uh, you know, the embodiment of evil, the, the idea, the Bible calls it the adversary, uh, the word we use is Satan, and there's an unbelief in, in, in Satan. But I do want you to know that if you throw out the belief of supernatural evil, you're gonna to have to throw most of this book out. Because it's not added in as an afterthought, it's not sort of uh, stirred into the recipe to spice the thing up a little bit. From the very first pages to the very last pages, we see that there is this, this cosmic reality, the, the good versus evil, that God has a plan and, and a movement and a people that he's gathering to himself. And there's an enemy to God's plan and an enemy to God's movement and an enemy of God's people. Uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he doesn't exist, right? 
And so what do we do with the devil? We caricaturize him, right? We come up with little salt and pepper shakers. That it's like, oh, here's good, here's bad. Or uh, Homer Simpson's got a little good Homer, a little bad Homer on the side. Or, oh, or we just kind of blind ourselves. We like see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Like there is no evil. Oh, it's just bad things happen. And, you know, I just want to tell you that uh, this is a problem, right? The problem of unbelief because it keeps us blinded to what is really going on in the spiritual realm. And so we just can't afford to live in ignorance. So unbelief, that's the first mistake humans make. Second mistake humans make is fascination. An unhealthy fascination with things supernatural, an unhealthy fascination with the demonic. And so you've got, you know, like a, a rash of television shows that are out, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, anything that's like Ghost Hunters or, uh, you know, Long Island Medium, uh, if, you've, if you heard about that one, um, the uh, nothing medium about that hair, uh, the idea of, uh, you know... Um, Paranormal activity, those, uh, you know, it's just so fun. It's just this fascination, right? And like last night, for example, my, my son Doozy, it's middle of the night, he comes in bed with us. He's, I said, what's up, buddy? He says, oh, dad, I'm, I'm scared. I'm thinking about ghosts. And I'm like, oh, buddy, there's no such thing as ghosts. Those are demons. Go back to bed. You know, like, <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. But you can see the idea, right? Unbelief is a major problem because it keeps us blinded. Our ears stop. We just, we're just kind of stumbling along, not understanding why all of this stuff is happening or unhealthy fascination. And it ends up sort of drawing us in. And then we see demons behind everything, right? You, you probably met somebody who's just like, everything's a demon. Everything's demonic. The door slowly creeps shut. That was a demon. Really? You know, I have looked through the scripture. I have not found a door shutting demon. Like that's not in there. Uh, maybe it was the other invisible force called wind, you know, like uh, there are natural, dis you know, reasons why things happen. And so we can't have this unhealthy fascination. We can't have unbelief. And then the third mistake mere mortals make is a kind of dualism. It's a dualism, and this is really an ancient philosophy. It goes back. It's not just uh, for one you know, era or for one country. It's actually kind of a pervasive belief that there is light and there is darkness, and they're at war, and they are equal. That there is good and there is bad, and there is battle, but it's an equal battle. And uh, that, you know, it, it, the, the scales are kind of always tipping back and forth, but there is this duality in the universe. And of course, that's not the picture we get in scripture. Yes, there is evil. God is sovereign. He is strong. It's not, he's supreme. There's not, there's not this idea that the devil and God, they go hand to hand. Who wins? We don't know. No, no, no. Uh, the, the devil, the Bible is really clear that the, the devil is a created being. And he is at war with God, but his strength, his power, very limited. So let's get into this, the text. If you're in your Bibles, it's Acts chapter 5. And we're going to jump in and we're going to talk about, um, again, this is another broad strokes paragraph about what was happening. And then we'll go into some specific examples in Scripture. But this is Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. You might just want to circle the word many. This is not a few. This is not just like maybe, uh, you know, here and there, kind of spotty. It's, this is happening with great regularity, and it's always very public. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. This was actually an area, uh, a courtyard area outside of the temple, still on the temple mount. 
No one else dared join them. This is interesting. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So in other words, there was this, people were being drawn to Jesus. They were being drawn to the disciples and the work that they were doing, but people were afraid publicly to come. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So there's salvation happening. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. You might want to circle that last phrase. So what we see in this passage, the, the, the primary thing that we see is that there are salvations happening there are healings happening, and there are deliverances happening. So three things that we see. Now, I want you to know that in the Greek, all three of those words have, they come from the same word, which is sozo, S-O-Z-O. And Jesus uses this word to describe all three occurrences. He uses the word sozo to talk about salvation. He uses the word sozo to talk about healing. And he uses the word sozo to talk about deliverance from the demonic. And so what I want you to see is this is that kind of full expression of the work of God in the world today. The Holy Spirit of God has come dwelling within believers so that sozo might take place. Salvation, healing, and deliverance. And if you look at verse 16, you see that those who were sick were healed. How many does it say were healed? All, right, you can even circle that. Uh, those that were tormented by impure spirits were set free. How many? Okay, so th- th- there's this, there, it's a very regular kind of a thing. And, and at Overlake, the paradigm that we want to use is when Jesus says, that when, he, when he teaches us to pray, and we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the paradigm that we keep coming back to is there sickness in heaven, No. So what we do is we stand in faith today and we pray heaven on earth today. We pray God's will come today. As it is in heaven, we pray on earth. Are there impure spirits in heaven? No. So we stand in faith today and and we pray heaven on earth today. The will of God released in lives today. Does this make sense? In heaven, however, you do have the fullness of sozo. You have the fullness of salvation, the fullness of deliverance, and the fullness of healing. So that's what we release today. We walk in faith, praying sozo today, bringing heaven on earth in this, uh, in this day and age. So I want to jump into two instances that we see in Scripture, one from Paul's life, one from Jesus. The first is found in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas and Luke are in the town of Philippi, and they're walking around this beautiful ancient town. They're trying to do some ministry, and they're being followed by a slave girl who has a demon. And this slave girl, for three days straight, she's just yelling constantly at Paul. They're just, from start to finish, just behind him all day, every day, three days, just screaming at the top of her lungs. And this is what she's saying in Acts 16, 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God. You might want to underline that. And they have come to tell you how to be saved. 
Very, very interesting. And, and, and we're going to talk about the content of, of her screaming in just a few moments. But you need to recognize that this is it's definitely a troublesome scenario. Here is, here's Paul. He's, he's trying to do some good stuff in Philippi. He's just being screamed at for three days. You know, at the end of three days, he, he had a headache. And he was really, it's like, I got to do something about this headache. When most of us have a headache, we reach for Excedrin. Uh, when Paul had a headache, he reached for something just a little bit stronger. And uh, that's as good as it gets, guys. I'm telling you. We thought, oh, wait, how do we lighten this message up? That's it. There's only one joke. And that was it, believe it or not. That's all, all we got. So, but it's so interesting to me that the, the thing that she's screaming is they're servants of the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. They're the ones who have the path to Sozo. And Paul turns around and brings Sozo to her right there, sets her free. She's delivered. Now, let's take a look at Jesus. This is in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 2. It says, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the cemetery to meet him. This man lived among burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? You might want to underline that phrase. In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Now, there's some really interesting things these passages reveal. And the first, if you're filling in the blanks, is this, that demons have orthodox theology. Demons have orthodox theology. Every time in the New Testament we hear from demons, they know exactly who Jesus is. The irony is that the, even the disciples didn't really understand exactly who Jesus was until after the resurrection. But the demons knew right away. This is Jesus, son of the most high God. This is Paul, servant of God most high, telling you the way to be saved, the way of Jesus. And, and here's what I want you to understand, that knowing biblical truth does not mean that you're right with God. Having orthodox theology here mental assent, intellectual assent to biblical truth, it, it, it's more than that. Because friends, the demons had better theology than we'll ever have. They knew exactly what the truth was because they lived in the spirit realm. We know the truth by faith. They knew it by sight. They had impeccable theology, but they were at war with God. So to be right with the Lord, yes, it's important that we know biblical truth, but that we actually love Jesus, that we actually join our lives with the purpose and plan of the Lord. And so the Bible talks about words like trusting and surrendering, believing and yielding, repenting and turning to God, right? The point is that yes, we would believe in biblical truth, that we would understand theology. I'm not knocking theology. It's important for us to have good theology. But there's more than that, and that is we align ourselves with the person of Jesus Christ, and we allow him to do his work in us and through us. 
If you want to think about kingdoms for a moment, think about this, that we, when we come to the Lord, we actually learn of his kingdom and we join into it. Whereas the demons know all about God's kingdom and they are at war with it. Does this make sense? And so ultimately, and this is where, like, this is why we pitch Jesus, why we want to live lives pointing to Jesus, why we love people as much as we can with the love of Jesus. We want them to see Jesus, know Jesus, yield their lives to Jesus. Why? Because at the end of the day, we enter eternity in one of those two places. We have either joined ourselves to the movement of God, being a part of the kingdom of God, or we find ourselves at war. Now you're wishing that joke was funnier. All right, number two, evil isolates. Evil isolates a person. It makes us hide. In in Mark chapter five, where's the guy living? He's living by himself. He's living in the tombs. Evil always isolates. It it begins sort of by harassment. That's how evil always begins, a pestering. The Bible uses the word torment. Compulsive thoughts we have, unrest. We're not at home in our own skin. There's constant temptation. And, and, when, and when that happens, when we're, when we're being tempted like that, we tend to think that we're the only people that this is happening to. We, we, we tend to think thoughts like, what kind of person am I that I keep being tempted by that thing? I mu- there must be something really wrong with me. And instead of joining into community where we can see through the lies of the enemy, we naturally tend to isolate ourselves. That's just what the enemy wants. That's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants us to isolate so he can keep on hammering the bruise so that he can keep on tormenting us, pestering us, harassing us, tempting us, maligning us, putting us down, right? All of the psychotic things that he goes after, but he he gets away with it when we're in isolation. Evil isolates us. And so I just, I want to say this that we make a big deal about not living this faith journey in isolation. Friends, we we believe this with all of our hearts. We preach it and we teach it, we find biblical examples about it, and we live it, that we do not want to live our faith journey in isolation, but we live it in community. And the primary way we do that is, is through our life groups. And I know some of you have been putting it off. You've been, you kind of, oh, I don't need that. Oh, I don't have time. I, sounds like a hassle. Listen to me. Do not live in isolation. And signups are in the hallway today, okay? <laughs> There's no excuse. Today we can end the isolation because demons, they have orthodox theology, but they're at war with God. Evil will isolate a person, keep us alone. And this leads us to the next The next part of this thing here, evil grows in strength if we continue to cooperate with it. So the Bible is clear that we can give evil a foothold when we let it linger, when we tolerate its presence in our life, in our minds, as we cooperate with what it is that the enemy is tempting us to do, then the Bible says we can actually give places in our lives, uh, uh, the enemy has a stronghold in those areas. So it moves from just a foothold to a stronghold. And what we see in Mark chapter 5, this man was so filled with the demonic that there were no chains that could break him. His, he, he was literally strong. 
because the enemy had such a stronghold in his life. If you want to think about a, a, an analogy of a stream for a moment, you think about the stream is the temptation that the enemy wants to cause us to stumble in. And he starts to harass us and try to push us in the stream. And, and he pesters us and he tempts us and he keeps haranguing us and going after us. And, and if we remain in isolation, then we find ourselves in the center of the stream. And we might just be in isolation, still fighting temptation, but we're in the center of the stream. Now there's this current pushing against us. It's just pushing against it, it's constantly wearing our strength down. And we might have good willpower for a while, we might say no for, for a while, but we're alone in a stream and the current is pushing against us. And then the moment we cooperate with it, what we're basically saying is, I'm just so tired of fighting. I'm so tired of the pestering and the harassing. It would just be easier to stop and to go with the current. And the next thing you know, the current's not just taking you downstream, it's holding you under. I do want to say this, that the power of Jesus' work on the cross and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, that's what lifts us out of the stream and puts us on solid ground. And being in the community of other rescued souls reminds us of who we are in Christ and gives us power and courage to be on solid ground. By the way, the last thing I, I want to make very, very clear is this does not mean that every temptation has a demon behind it. It really doesn't. The Bible actually is quite clear that there are three things that cause us to be tempted and to stumble. You can write these down, look it up on your own. That we are tempted by the enemy, yes, but we are also tempted by our flesh and by the world. The very paradigms set up in a fallen, sinful world prompt us away from God. And so it's not necessary to believe that there's a demon on your shoulder every time you feel a tempting thought. Could just be your flesh, could just be the paradigm of living in a fallen world. But it's the power of Jesus that rescues us. It's being around other rescued believers. That rescues us and sets our feet on solid ground. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So if you have trusted Christ with your life, if you've allowed him to offer you forgiveness that he purchased on the cross, grace, he's cleansed us of all of our unrighteousness, what's happened is he's moved us. We are not a part of the kingdom of darkness, but we are rescued. We're a part of the kingdom of Jesus. And what this means, friends, is that Jesus has the highest authority. The Bible talks in many places about how Jesus is supreme, that all authority in the universe has been ceded to Jesus Christ and if you, if you doubt this, you want to look up, what are verses that talk about Jesus being above all? On the screen, just jot these down. Revelation 1, 8 through 18. John 13, 3. Matthew 28, 18. Colossians 1, 15. And as you read through these passages, what you'll see is Jesus is supreme. He is above all. The power of evil is great, but it is nothing compared to the power of Jesus. And we have a direct line to Jesus. The highest authority in the universe has come and dwells within us. What this means is that the devil has no right to influence my life. The devil has no right 
to influence your life, believer? None. Now, he has desire to do to influence your life. He has tenacity to try to influence your life. But the devil has no authority to influence your life unless you give him that authority. So this is why it's important for us to cede authority only to Christ and to recognize that he is our authority. We want him to influence our life and him alone. We submit to his authority in our lives that we do not listen to the devil. We do not cede authority to him. 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 5 says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought we hold captive and we make it obedient to Christ even before we think it, even before we embrace it, even before we allow it to become truth in our minds. And when temptation comes, the sooner we hold thoughts captive, the better it is, the more effective, and the easier it is. Okay. I wanna give you just one illustration. This is from a comic strip uh, that was out uh, many years ago uh, called Kathy, the comic strip. We actually couldn't get the comic strip, but this is what it is. You'll see just how uproarious it is to see a comic strip that has no comic uh, associated with it. You guys, you're going to be laughing. You're going to be falling about the place. It's going to be fun. Uh, she's, she's feeling tempted to break her diet in this particular comic strip. And so in the first frame, she thinks, I'll go for a drive, but I won't stop at the grocery store. In the next frame, she says, well, I'll drive past, but I won't stop. Next frame, well, I'll stop, but I won't go inside the grocery store. Uh, then the next one, I'll go inside, but I won't go down the candy aisle. Then I'll go down the candy aisle, but I'll just look. I won't pick up any candy. Then I'll pick up the candy, but I won't buy it. Then I'll, I'll buy it, but I won't open it. I'll open it, but I won't smell it. I'll smell it, but I won't taste it. And finally, uh, I taste it, but I won't eat it. And the very last frame is just her eat, 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 right? She just goes crazy. It's just so funny. <laughs> just, just, I, uh, gosh, whew. Oh, it's just, uh, it's actually why Kathy's no longer in syndication. Uh, so here is just Captain Obvious question right here. When should she have hold her thoughts captive to be obedient to Christ? Which frame? The first frame, that's right. So, so I don't know what the vein is for you. I don't know what the current is, the river that Satan keeps trying to push you in. I assume that many of us, we've got one or two. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our proclivities. He keeps hammering the, the bruise in our lives. <clears throat> I don't know what yours is. But just let me be very, very clear. The earlier you opt out of that train of thinking, the better right? The, the, the quicker you begin to hold your thoughts captive. By the way, not every thought you have is your thought. That is the work of the enemy. He, he just, he sails little, it's like paper airplanes. This, this thought, so where did that come from, you know? And, but if you let it linger and you begin to mull over that thought, then it becomes yours. You start going down the pathway, right? So when it first sails over, when that first temptation comes, that's when you hold the thought captive. That's when you yield to Christ. That's when you recognize, no, no, I, the authority in my life is Christ and Christ alone. I don't give authority to the enemy in this. Okay. One of my favorite verses in all scripture, Romans 8, 6, letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. I get to hold my thoughts captive. How? Well, you know what? I invite the Holy Spirit. He's already dwelling within me. I just let him 
guide my thinking. I let him be the one who, who leads me. He, he's already dwelling inside. Now I just seed my thoughts to him. I found this quote from a book called Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. And these are, these are as the words of Jesus, as he would speak them. He says, though my blood has fully redeemed you, your mind is the last bastion of rebellion. Open yourself to my radiant presence, letting my light permeate your thinking. Friends, I want to tell you that nothing can stand in the face of the power of the resurrected Christ within you. Nothing. The same power that conquered the grave lives inside of you, lives inside of me. The Bible assures us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are not alone in this battle. The Holy Spirit dwells with us, empowering us, and enabling us in victory. And there's an interesting phrase that I would have you dwell on, and it's this, that we are stewards of a person, the Holy Spirit. We are stewards of his presence in our lives. We steward him, and and the way that we make choices and the way that we choose our thought patterns, our behavior patterns, our isolation or our community, there are all kinds of things that we do that uh, impact how we're stewarding the Holy Spirit in our lives. Scripture says there are two things that that we can't afford to do to the Holy Spirit. I put them on your notes. The first, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Right, that's the first thing. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. We're not to grieve the Spirit. We're not to quench the Spirit. And what that means is that we all have the challenge of honoring and respecting the Spirit of God in our lives by our choices. So, for example, when I choose not to hold my thoughts captive in frame one or frame two or frame three, I am grieving the spirit within me. When I choose to isolate or cooperate with evil, I am quenching the spirit within me. And the problem is not on the spirit's end of the equation. The problem's on my end of the equation. Think about a garden hose for a moment. You go to the the house, you go to the faucet, you turn the water on full blast. And then you go down to the end of the hose, right? And if, there's, if, if, if the line's just, you know, good, then the hose is like, you know, it's, it's all kinds of water flowing. And that's the relationship that God wants, that the Holy Spirit is already turned on full blast, that we would be experiencing his presence in our lives. But you also know what it's like when your spouse has parked the car on the hose, and you turn the water on full blast and you go to the end, it's like nothing, like maybe a couple drops. You're like, What's going on? Oh, there's a kink in the hose. Right? You might want to write this down because you'll think about this for a couple weeks. I can't afford to kink the hose, okay? I cannot afford to kink the hose. By my choices, I'm, putting a, 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 I'm, I'm folding that garden hose and I'm the one who's preventing the Holy Spirit from working within me. There's a visual, by the way, I just want you to understand that I believe everything that we're talking about today, but none of these concepts are original to Mike Howerton. When I have an original thought, we will all throw a party, but until then, I, I listen to other pastors, I read other books, like these are all concepts that I've gathered as I've done study and, and lived my life, my faith for the last 23 years. And this analogy actually I found from Bill Johnson down in California. And he says, I want you to think about the picture of Jesus when he was baptized. 
So Jesus comes up out of the water. If you remember, this is a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in one passage. So Jesus comes up out of the water. The voice of the Father from the heavens echoes throughout. I mean, everyone heard it. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven in the form of, do you guys remember? A dove. And comes and alights on Jesus, and some of your translations say, and remained, and some of your translations say, and settled upon Jesus. So just right off the bat, think about the visual that that is, that the disciples are there, Jesus is coming up out of the water, he's all dripping, all of a sudden, you know, it's, an, it's, it's just this monstrous, thunderous voice, this is my son, wow, that was, that was strange, did you hear that? That was, oh look, a bird landing on Jesus, he's landing there, he's, he's staying on Jesus, that's an interesting, you know, it's, it's, it's just interesting, I mean, I've never seen it, have you, Paul, Peter, no, I haven't seen it, you know, John, no, I've never, never on me, you know, like, it's interesting. Now, here's the question. And again, we're talking about in this, it, it is spiritual significance, the Holy Spirit coming upon and remaining on Jesus for the remainder of his ministry in life. So, I, I, and so you know, there's all kinds of, of spiritual realities that we walk in because of the model set by Christ. Here's the point. Bless you. <laughs> if you had a dove on your shoulder and you wanted him to remain, how would you move? Very carefully. How, how would you interact with other people? How, how would you enter your home or exit your home or get in your car? Right. The answer is, if you wanted the dove to remain, you would make all of your choices with the dove in mind. And so in a very real way, if we want the Spirit to have full access to our lives, if we want to live in the, the full font, right, the garden hose, completely untethered, right, and unkinked, and just flowing in through our lives, to us and through us, then we have to make our choices based on the dove. We want him to remain. We want him to have access to our lives. And I want you to know, friends, and this is where we started, that every time, every time, that God is on the move, you can expect the enemy to be in opposition. He does not want us free. He does not want us to live abundant lives and he does not want us loving outlandishly and he certainly do doesn't want us to be aware of the authority we have in Jesus Christ. So the enemy will distract us, he will keep our ears plugged, he will even try to keep followers of Jesus ignorant of his tactics. That's why I believe the Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We are not unaware of his schemes. And so that's what we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. What are his schemes? In the first part of John 10, 10, Jesus tells us, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Satan is up to. That's what he has always been up to. Steal, kill, and destroy. For those of you who have been kind of following along with the news recently or with Overlake social media, my Facebook page, etc., 
you know that this has been a really crazy week from Wednesday to Wednesday, seven days. That a week ago, Wednesday, our dear friends, Pastor Jake and Davey, got the news that their beautiful three-year-old daughter, Maggie, has an inoperable tumor on her brainstem. And that the best hope that medicine can offer right now is about nine months. The following Monday, a dynamic member of OCC, Kyle Warnick, who is a loving father, an incredible husband, a joyful Christ follower, was struck by a car while he was walking his dog, and he passed away early Tuesday morning. On Wednesday morning, we gathered together as a staff, and we prayed and cried over these two evidences of evil in the world. And on Wednesday afternoon, we heard the news that a gentle, humble, generous partner in ministry at Overlake, a friend of mine named Rich Bergeson, was killed in his home. The indication is that it was by a homeless 20-year-old named Kevin, who Overlake has also been trying to help for a couple of years, and who Rich was trying to care for as an expression of blessing my city. It appears that Kevin and a colleague beat Rich to death, stole credit cards and his car, and headed for Canada. Now that they've been arrested and are in jail, it seems that they're trying to steal Rich's reputation as well. So let me say that Rich and I have been friends for the past seven years or so. I've seen his selfless heart. I've seen his dependable and steadfast spirit, his integrity, and his gracious generosity. Rich has been consistent encouragement, a supporter of the mission of God at Overlake, and a thoughtful partner in ministry. Rich was consistently kind, caring, and good. He and I have done coffees and meals together. We've talked about how God is growing us in our unique faith journeys. Rich talked to me about how he had seen God work as he served with the team in South Africa, has cared for kids and families impacted by HIV and AIDS. And at the beginning of this year, early 2014, I sensed that God was leading us as a church to pursue a new vision where we're called to blessing the cities that we live in, to care, to serve, to pray for the communities that we're a part of, that we would seek to outlandishly love our neighborhoods and our local schools, our towns. And Rich was one of a handful of people that I processed with privately before announcing this vision publicly. Rich was behind it 100%. His response to me, what else is there, Mike? What else should the church be if not the hands and feet of Jesus trying to help meet needs with love? And Rich walked his talk. He lived his faith. I bring up Maggie and Kyle and Rich's story to illustrate exactly what I've been talking about today. Each of these events is evil. Bare-faced, undisguised evil. And it's just, it's easy to see just how evil it is. Like evil has gone on a seven-day killing spree kind of a thing. Most of the time, the enemy wraps up temptation in high heels or chocolate-covered caramel or something expensive and glittering, 
so that it looks enticing or fun, harmless and delicious. But this week, Overlake, we've seen evil laid bare, stealing, killing, and destroying. That's what the enemy always does. It's what he has always done. We are not unaware of his schemes. But never forget that evil does not have the last word. Jesus is the last word. He is the highest authority. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the one who has welcomed Kyle and Rich into eternity with a hero's welcome to the cheers of multitudes. Jesus is the one even now caring for Kyle's family, caring for Maggie, carrying Maggie's parents, touching countless, of, countless numbers of lives through that story. And Jesus is the one And Jesus is the one that we lift Kevin up to now. I can't speak much about Kevin because of the ongoing investigation, but I can say that though our hearts are broken, we will continue to lift Kevin up to Jesus. We will continue to seek to care for Kevin, praying that Kevin will tell the truth and that Kevin will surrender his life to Jesus because Rich gave his life caring for Kevin. And Jesus gave his life caring for Kevin. And evil does not get the last word in this story. So Overlake, be strong. Be strong in the Lord. Invite the Holy Spirit to dwell richly in your heart. Don't kink the garden hose. We are living in the first church days. I know that there are other stories as well. Other diagnoses this week. Microsoft went through some layoffs. I know many are impacted. I just want to end our time together by saying that Jesus, he told us that in this world we will have trouble. But take heart, Overlake. He has overcome the world. Okay. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, you know the work that each one of us want to yield to. You know the areas of our lives where we need you to come, to forgive, to bring your grace. The broken areas where we need to offer them to you so that you can come and bring your healing. Lord, we know the places in our lives where we have yielded to the enemy, we've, we've offered authority to him so that now he has footholds, maybe even strongholds in some places. We invite you to come right there. And Lord, we invite the full measure of your sozo today. Yes. We invite the full measure of your salvation in our lives. We invite the full measure of your healing to us, the full measure of your deliverance to your church. And Lord, we ask that you would allow us to live powerfully as the first church 
that you would allow us to just to be bold, that we would just honor you and, and offer you glory and praise, that we would reflect your majesty in all of the ways that we think and all of the things that we do and, and all of the, the, the places where we put our hand to the plow, we want you to be the one who receives glory and honor. And now, Holy Spirit, we do ask for you to move powerfully in the life of Maggie, that you would bring your healing. We know you're going to heal her. We, we stand in faith you're going to heal her. We know that in heaven there's perfect healing. We pray that, he, that heaven on earth right now. In the land of the living, we want to see Maggie healed for your glory, for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. And we pray for Kyle's family right now, his, his beautiful bride, Pam. We pray for his sons. We ask that you would just bring your comfort, your care. You surround them with love. That the expression, the community that I've seen around this family, that they would be life-giving, that they would just be able to, to carry one another on their shoulders as they walk through this difficult season. And for all the friends and family of Rich Bergeson, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pour your courage in even in that example, the enemy wants to tempt us to turn our back on the world, that we would become cold, that we would say, see, that's what you get for caring. And Lord, we refuse to give him space in this conversation. We love you, Jesus. We thank you so much for all the ways you've poured out your love to us. We walk now in your strength and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.